you're here this morning. Today is October 31st, and uh, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again, but before we do that, I want to open in prayer, and then I want to address uh, a little bit more the things, the questions that were coming up last week at the end of um, at the end of the Bible study, uh, because I think there are important questions to continue to to pursue, so that we understand a little bit more about the 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 words that were being used. So let's let's open in prayer. Father, I thank you for today again. Lord, I just praise you for your blessings. I thank you for your love for us, and I thank you uh, just for the word that you've given us. Uh, and I pray that you'd help us to understand it today and completely obey what you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember at the end of the lesson last week, um, there, was, there was a conversation that was going on about did God repent? And is it the same word that's used in the New Testament for repentance that applies to uh, followers of Jesus Christ and the lost world and the relationship between that? And so I did a little bit more research on that, and there are a number of passages in the Old Testament that use repent in place of a Hebrew word um, that describes the sorrow of God. And, I, and I, as I was researching this, um, it, it really helped me to understand that how God can choose to feel emotion, okay? Um, and so it doesn't mean, and I'll give you a for instance, in Genesis chapter 6, you can turn there if you like, uh, verses 6 and 7, we read um, how God, it, it, it appears as though God changed his mind, and the question was, if God changes his mind, then that makes him uh, not omniscient and not inerrant, um, and so it makes it sound like the the qualities of God are not what they seem. And so in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, he says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and that his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord says, I will wipe out from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. And that comes from a Hebrew word, yinehem, and it means to be sorrowful, and also part of the definition is to repent um, or regret, and it also means to self-comfort. And so God's not saying, I did wrong by creating human beings, but he knew that he was going to create human beings, that they were going to turn away from him, they were going to sin, and that he was going to feel sorrowful for the punishment for their sin, and he was going to feel sorrowful for the wrath that was going to, to be poured out on people who were going to reject him. So it's not a case of where God sinned or where he did something incorrect or, or wrong or unrighteous because he was just, but at the same time, the heart of God still is sorrowful for what has to be done for justice to be executed. Do you understand what that what I'm saying there? Um, yes. King James actually says who in the King James. 
it says repent, right. So the interpretation for repent in like the King James Version and some other, other Bibles is not the same as when Peter tells people to repent and be baptized in Acts chapter 2. So they're different words. Peter is commanding us to turn away from sin and turn to God. And God is describing that he is sorrowful for the situation that he knew was already going to happen. And he is able to experience the sorrow that is in conjunction with the wrath that has to be poured out. And so the same thing is, happens in Exodus 32, um, verses 12 through 14. And this is a reference to the golden calf. Uh, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and realizes that they've turned to a calf to be their God. And we don't have to go there, but I do want to go to Deuteronomy uh, 32. And it's a similar word in, in the Hebrew in Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. And this is a song, actually the whole chapter is a song that Moses is singing to the Israelites. And in verse 36, he says, The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. And again, this word means to be sorry or to, to, uh, to show compassion. And so he's, uh, God is demonstrating the emotional side of himself in this and saying that it's never his desire to administer punishment to people. It's always his desire, as we read in Peter, it's always his desire that people come to repentance and turn to God and turn away from sin. But people who choose not to, he already knows from the beginning, people that choose not to are going to suffer wrath. And he also knows from the beginning that the result of that as far as God's emotional side uh, and the demonstration of that is it's going to break his heart to do that, and it always will. And so First Samuel says is very similar when, uh, when he puts Solomon on the throne. First Samuel 15, if we go there, there's the same type of word. It's, it's slightly different. Nehemtai is, uh, is the word that's used there. First Samuel 15:11. And I actually found there's a lot more places where these Hebrew words are used than what I realized in the Old Testament. Um, but again, they, they point to uh, still the sovereignty of God, um, the righteousness of God, his justness, um, his holiness as well. Uh, but it also describes that he is sorrowful. Uh, and, you know, we see the interpretation as relenting or re repentance and it's not the same word as the Greek language that's used in the New Testament. So 1 Samuel 15, 11, um, I'll start in verse 10. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and he says, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instruction. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. And if we jump down to verse 35, he says again, um, Starting, let's go to 34. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Geba of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. 
Uh, and then, of course, there's, there's the description similarly in, in Nineveh, um, you know, in Nineveh, or in uh, Jonah chapter 3, um, you know, God repents of, of the action that he's going to take of in Nineveh, and the result is, is that Nineveh repented, New Testament repentance, uh, or, or turn from evil and turn to God, turn from sin and turn to God. And that description of repentance is the description of the New Testament repentance that we see in the church age as well as Nineveh. They demonstrated their repentance by putting on sackcloth and by, you know, uh, implementing a day of fasting. Um, and, and they begged and cried out to God to forgive them and to turn from the ways that they had been living and then, of course, in Luke 3, 3, we read last week um, that John the Baptist says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance and demonstrate your repentance by what you do, and then I will baptize you. Um, we saw that last week. And, of course, in Acts 2, 38, um, we'll look at that a little later. In Acts 2, 38, the word for repent and be baptized that Peter uses means to think differently. Um, it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that we read Paul say in Romans 12 too. Uh, and so the words are translated the same in the English language, but it's important, like, like the question that did arise last week, it's important to research um, where the word comes from in the Hebrew and in the Greek language to, um, to correctly handle the word. And um, so anyway... Good questions, good conversation we had last week, and important things to continue to research. So, um, so Sherry, you were correct in what you were saying, that it's not the same, because it's, <laughs> it's not the same. Um, yes? Yes. Yes. Right. 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 Will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to the 
Right. 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 And then we read 27 and go, why didn't he anticipate this was going to happen and change it? <laughs> so, and, and so when we sing this song from creation to the cross and from a cross into eternity, we understand that, that the Bible was, we understand that the Bible was written from beginning to end before uh, the beginning of the foundation of the world. So, yeah. Um, that's, that's an excellent point. So uh, I actually have Matthew 27 written on Psalm 20, 23 there, or 22, excuse me, uh, right at the top of there so that, so that there's a good reference there to that. Right. Right, right. So when we come back to 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, where we were last week, Christ did not send me to baptize. We, we had gotten started by talking about baptism, and Paul's not, you know, he's not minimizing the obedience that's in baptizing, but he is emphasizing the importance that turning to God in obedience has to come first, which means if there is an obedience to God, there is a production of fruit. And so... Um, and he, he makes a reference to speaking with wisdom and eloquence. And eloquent, eloquent speaking can lead to persuading the mind. Uh, we can convince people if we speak eloquently enough. And we see it do it in politics. We see it in business. We see it in, in so many different areas of life that I can convince you if I have the proper speech and the proper words, I can convince you of just about anything. But it appears foolish um, only the words of the gospel are, are appear foolish by human standards, but it's only the words of the gospel that captivate the heart. Okay? So we can speak with eloquence and wisdom, and we can, we can change a person's mind, but when, when we're convinced in our mind that this is what happened, uh, when we're convinced in our mind that I am what God says I am, I fall short of his glory, and I am a sinner, it changes our heart, and that's when, with the heart, you believe and you obey. <coughs> so fundamentally, the, the, the Corinthians, they needed a renewal of the mind. Um, so when we think of 1 John 1.9, um, is everybody familiar with 1 John 1.9? If you're not, we'll go ahead and turn to it. Um, let's just go ahead and read it. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in verse 8. And it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And in verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And verse 10, If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So that word confess means doesn't mean just to verbally express, yeah, I'm a sinner, but it means to acknowledge that what God says about the things that I do are true. So 
if God says, say Dave Mannion looks lustfully after a, at a woman, God says you're a fornicator. God says Dave Mannion's a fornicator. I say, you're right. And I need to let you change me. If God says Dave Mannion's a fornicator and I say, well, everybody does it. It's the culture. I'm a okay. I'm pretty good guy because I don't act on it. I don't go out and, you know, do things that I shouldn't do. And I start justifying by the, my surroundings or by my circumstances. Then God says, you're calling me a liar. And you're, there's no truth in you. And so in confessing, that requires an act of change that takes place. And so when we read... Um, he will purify us from all unrighteousness. If we read Titus 2, 11, 12, 13, he says that the grace that brings salvation has appeared to everyone and it teaches us to say no to looking at women lustfully. It doesn't say that specifically, but it says, teaches us to say no to anything that is ungodly. Teaches us to say no to lustful desires. It teaches us to say no to things of passion that are ungodly. Um, and it transforms us, and it changes us. So that's what's difficult, uh, because there's, that's when the spiritual warfare is going on inside of us. And, and God is <laughs> helping me to see that spiritual warfare as I, as I study the Word, and I grow more, and I have more conversations with people that are able to speak truth into me, uh, and I'm just encouraged by that. Um, but back to speaking with eloquence and, and, and um, wisdom, if you look at what they told Peter in Acts chapter 4, if you recall that, um, that event that took place when, when Peter is before the Sanhedrin, yes, Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 17, This is, this is what I, I think is really cool because there's a proverb that says the righteous have the boldness of lions. When you know you're right as far as the scripture is concerned and you know what you're doing is a righteous thing in God's eyes, you can have immense courage that goes far beyond anybody's understanding. So in verse 13, he says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled ordinary men and they were astonished as they took note that these men had been with Jesus wow Acts 4 13 so <clears throat> the, the, the members of the Sanhedrin are just amazed that these ordinary they're fishermen you know they're just laborers they're workers and they take note because they were making a stand for Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then they conferred together. And they say, What are we going to do with these men? They asked everyone living in um, They asked, sorry, everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed notable signs, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in, uh, in this name. 
so they want to maintain their religion. They're content. They're comfortable in the religion that's been established and the power and the authority that they have. And so when Jesus, as the Messiah and as the King, comes on to the, comes on to the scene and the disciples are teaching and preaching, they're going, if we change, it's going to really disrupt our life. If we allow this to continue, even though it is true, even though the signs are there, the proof is there, we have to keep a sense of order. And so they're saying they don't want to believe. They're making that choice and that decision. So if we, if we, if we back up to Acts chapter 2, While you guys are there, um, I wanted to make a uh, wanted to look at this for just a second. Uh, he he makes a reference of being cut to the heart. So in chapter two, verses verse thirty eight, Peter replies, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." Um, I wrote down the wrong verse, but that is a verse that was dealing with uh, repentance. Uh, but there is, let's see, I think it's verse 40. No, I'm sorry, just the verse before that. I just didn't add 37. Verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they hear the truth, the truth saturates their mind they understand the truth they realize how they have grieved god in the way that they've lived their lives and they realize that if they continue in their traditions that they are following and they continue the way that they live their life without repentance it changes their heart it changes what happens it changes their decision making process in what they do so it doesn't make any sense in the world that we live in to live according to what the Bible says as opposed to what uh, philosophy says or according to what the, the world says. And so it led to yesterday, the, there was a question that popped up. Um, and and it, it, I was just amazed at how God was working. I, I walked up and asked this guy if I could pray with him. He's just kind of like, well, okay, yeah, whatever. You know, sure, you can pray for me. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? Well, I believe in God, but he was he was pretty... Okay, just pray for me and then leave me alone. I said, okay, you know. So I prayed, and my, and my prayer was, Lord, I pray that you reveal yourself to this gentleman and, and that he, his knowledge about you would increase. And, you know, and I said, I pray that he can just be joyful today and, and experience you. And I said, amen. And I just, okay, you know. And I, I felt a little discouraged. There's another gentleman sitting here, and he's listening to the prayer. He says, you know, I really appreciate that prayer. He said it's important that we really acknowledge God in things. And it led to a conversation. I'm going, yeah, you know, so I'm sitting here conversing with this other gentleman, and he's, he says he's a, he's a follower of Christ, and he's a Christian and that. And so it leads to these kinds of questions of, you know, when we're following Christ, does it make sense always to follow Christ? And so, because I learned from my mentor to just ask questions, I said, so who... Um, who was the first to discover that the earth was round? 
<laughs> I was like, and all of a sudden I had the attention of about five people, and they go, well, it wasn't Christopher Columbus. And one says, well, was it Magellan? Uh, was it Ponce de Leon? Was it this person? Was it that person? I said, no, no, no. I said, are you familiar with the prophet Isaiah? Every one of them. Yeah, I've heard of Isaiah. I'm, I'm familiar. Um, from one gentleman who was a Jewish man, there was another guy that was a different religion and things like that. I said, God told Isaiah in, in Isaiah chapter 40, he told him then that the earth was round. And I said, the reason why in 1490 that Christopher Columbus says, I have to prove to you that the world is round is because between 700 years B.C. and 1490, people looked around and said, the earth's not round. What are you, what are you crazy? Look, the earth is flat. You can see miles and miles. And they said, we're not, and they had to choose not to believe this. And so I walk over and I grab a Bible off the table that they got sitting there and the print is so small and I've got my contacts in and I'm going, I can't read. And so the guy that I initiated the conversation, I just handed him the Bible and said, will you read verses 21 and 22? And he reads the verses. And, and he's like, huh. And I said, God told Isaiah, when I created the earth, I created it round. And this other guy walks, he's, let me see that. And he grabs the Bible and I'm sitting there going... Ephesians 4, 28, 29 are happening right now. <laughs> and I'm getting all excited. I'm just sitting there just trying to keep calm, keep quiet, you know. And the one guy, he picks up and he reads it. And he goes, huh. And he hands it back to me and walks away. And I was like, wow, you know. And, and just to see God work in that way, I think I'm, I'm convinced that everybody sitting there was going, I know what this says is true. I know what it says is real. And they're all going, do I want to choose it? Because if I do, then that means I have to change. And I have to allow God to change me. And so that, that continues to lead me. I, I, just, I'm just so, I feel like I'm so privileged to be able to be a part of that because I've watched some of these people throughout the summer as, as they've heard a little bits of the gospel, a little tidbits about the word of God, and they're going, Man, and I, and I think of the lawyer, Mark describes the lawyer that comes to Jesus and he says, he asks the question, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gives him the description. And the lawyer in Mark, he's the only one that records it this way. He says, I understand I need to love my neighbor and I need to love the Lord to God, my God with all my heart, my soul, my understanding and my strength. He says, I understand that. And Jesus responds to him by saying, you're not far from the kingdom. It's in here. Let it fill you here. Let it sink in and understand that I am who I say I am. And so I picture, you know, in my imagination, I picture in Mark 10 this lawyer looking around going, what he says is right. And, and, and the other lawyers sitting around are going, would you shut up? <laughs> Stop talking, you know. Because he's acknowledging that the law, he, he knows what the law says. And he's going, the man's right. And Jesus is saying, now let it change you. And he's just at that point. He's at the edge. So anyway, um, verse 18 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And that's a quote out of Isaiah. We can look at that in a minute here. But if we look at Matthew 20, verse 28. Matthew 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the world we live in today, that don't make sense. That's foolish. That's a ridiculous way of thinking. So if we back up to Matthew 23, I'm sorry, move forward to Matthew 23. And we read verses 1 through 12. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them, and everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long, and they love the places of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. They do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called uh, nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Jesus describes that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are giving you the correct information, but they're not executing that information for themselves. And so... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, again, in the world that we live in. The message of the cross cuts to the heart of self-centeredness, and that makes sanctification an enemy of common sense. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have common sense. We should have common sense. Um, but when common sense overrides truth, then that's, that's a problem. There's a struggle there. So Paul recognizes the process of salvation begins with justification, okay? Um, we understand that we're guilty of sinning against a holy God, and we're declared just by the blood of Jesus. And then it's advanced by sanctification, which means that we're being set apart for God's work, and we're growing and producing fruit. So the, 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 the principle of sanctification uh, Paul is streak, speaking directly in 1 Corinthians 18, 1.18 uh, that it's progressive. And it's described as progressive sanctification. So when we read that we are being saved, that means that we're constantly being changed by the truth of the gospel. There are things in the gospel that I don't know and understand today that 
I hope to someday before he returns, and I hope to grow in that area. There are things today that I don't do correctly or that I don't do perfectly as God would have me do, but I am, I'm being drawn to knowing and understanding how to, to do that. And so when we, when we listen to the message of the cross being foolishness, um, there's a passage, uh, I'm kind of jumping ahead, I'm going to wait on that, but there is a passage later that we'll, we'll read here in a few minutes um, that helps us to understand why that is. So renouncing ourselves and surrendering to the obedience of God, which may lead and probably will lead to humiliation and possibly death, is where we're going. Um, and we see that in some of these other passages as well. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at that later as well. Uh, ultimately leads not to self-destruction, but self-preservation and exaltation. So Jesus says, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, he describes to the disciples in the Gospels that when you do that, it's going to be dangerous physically um, in the physical realm. It's going to be hazardous to your health. Um, there are going to be people, that, be people that hate you. There are going to be people that don't agree with what you say, and there's going to be people that, that really want to distance themselves from you because you're giving them the truth. And so when Peter stands before the Sanhedrin and does exactly what Jesus tells him to do, they're going, we need to deal with this. We need to get rid of this person. Um, and so if we look at Mark 8, let's take a look at that real quick. Mark chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 34 through 38. Actually, this is the passage I was just referring to. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever wants... Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. So last week... I asked a question at the beginning of the lesson. The question was what kind of things in our lives and in our churches today uh, that need to change that are actively emptying the cross of its power. And Larry, do you remember what your answer was? Okay. Your answer was is, is people are hypocrites. They, they act one way in church and they act a different way out in the world uh, Monday through Saturday. And the reality is you know, we want to say, well, I act, this is who I really am when I'm in church. And when I'm out in the world, that's not me. That's, that's you know, me struggling. And the reality is, it's actually the other way around. God says, if you come into church and you're, little, and you're struggling and you feel like you're a little unnatural, you're not in your natural element, and you go out into the world and you feel like you're in your natural element, that role needs to reverse. Because when you feel like you're in the natural, you are in the natural. 
and you are naturally out of fellowship with God in that place. And I'm not talking about you know, what you do as a career and those kinds of things, but I'm talking about the things that go through your mind, the things that are being trained, um, that, you're, that you're training yourself to do with the Scripture and the things that are in your heart when you look at somebody else um, and, and you know that you feel that little tug saying, share the gospel with that person. Uh, give, give that person Jesus Christ. Um, and so I, I completely agree with your answer, but I look at it and I say, because I used to be that person. I was exactly that person, you know, that I would act one way in church and I would act a different way out in the world. Um, and I, it, it, the word of God fi- <laughs> finally showed me, David, you're lost. Because when you're in the world, that's you in your natural element. Um, a fish swims because it's their nature. I would do things that were ungodly because it was my nature to do those things. So when I allowed Jesus to change me, my nature changed. Now I want to do things for Christ. Now I want to follow him. So looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, turn just a couple pages. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. giving you a lot of scripture today i hope that's all right the description of that is right here the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of god but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments We'll read verse 16 as well. For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So have you ever encountered anyone who has said something like this? I've read the Bible and I just don't understand it. So I'm not going to follow Christ because I don't understand the Bible. When we encounter a person like that, uh, Paul describes here, if you go into it, with the, with the disposition with, I've already made up my mind that it's incorrect. But you know what? Change my mind if you can. They're not going to be changed because this is not an intellectual book. This is a spiritual book. And it's discerned only by the Spirit. And if the attitude behind it is, Lord, I want to do what's right or even if you don't even acknowledge there's a God, but you're, you're looking and you're searching and going, I want to know what truth is. I want to know what's right. And you go into the Bible saying, is this it? I hope I know because I want to do what's right. Boom, the Spirit comes in and gives understanding of what's written in the Scripture. Now that doesn't mean that, man, I'm reading and I, I just don't understand. Isaiah, <laughs> you know, what is he talking about, you know? Um, Larry and I, we pray every time, Lord, give us understanding. Give us something, please. And, uh, and that's our heart's desire. And usually as we're reading through, we don't get the whole thing that we're reading, but there'll be something in there that, that God says, I want to show you this today. I want to help you understand it. And, we're the, and the attitude is, I want to know more. I want to know more. And so he gradually brings us along. And I'm glad he does it that way because if he took all the understanding and just dumped it on us all at once, you know, I don't know what would happen. I, you know, it would just be, uh, it would just be so overwhelming. 
So anyway, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, he's explaining that a person who has already made up their mind about what they're going to believe is not going to understand and pursue righteousness and holiness that the Bible describes. So Romans 1, 14, I've got uh, two more passages here to look at and then, then we'll, be, we'll wrap it up. Romans 1, 14 through 17, Paul is saying, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So I'm going to stop right there for just a second, and he's describing young people, old people, they can all understand the love of Jesus Christ. They can all understand the sacrifice that was made, and they all understand that they are sinners. When you read Romans 3.23, they all understand that we fall short or we've missed the mark uh, of righteousness. So then Paul goes on to say in verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed and a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul writes later in Titus 2, again, uh, um, he says that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to everybody. And here he's saying in chapter 1, verse 16, it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So the grace allows it to go out and everybody to hear and to understand and make a decision. Everybody has the opportunity to make that decision. And when the decision is made to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, that's when we are acknowledging and God says, okay, you believe. You're one of mine. Paul is saying, that those are who the people that are being described, everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. So the, ghost, the gospel message goes to the Jewish people first, and when they, did, they reject it, it goes and it is turned over to the, the Gentiles. So one more passage, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Sorry, I'm not very fast with the pages today. He says, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. And this is taken out of Isaiah 29. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithful, or if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So, 
Paul gives the instruction to Timothy to continue to remind us um, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, continue to remind us why we follow Christ and why we execute the Great Commission and the things that we do, we want to continue to uh, follow through with the, with the desire and the passion of understanding that the people that we come in contact with, God wants them to repent and he wants them to have a relationship with him and to continue to look forward to the rapture um, and keep reminding one another, warning each other uh, about the different things that come in and disturb and disrupt the body of believers as well. So, uh, and that's all I had this morning. If you have any, does anybody have any questions or comments? Um, we're actually done right on time, which is odd. <laughs> not too early, not too late. But if you do have a, a comment or a question, um, go ahead and, and speak up. No? Nobody wants to a answer last week's question again? <laughs> no? Last week's question, what kind of things are in our lives and in our churches today that need change that are actively emptying the cross of its power? Complacency. Complacency. And I think what somebody said apathy last, last week. So yeah, that's absolutely because we want to come in, we want to Okay, don't disturb my life. I just want to come in and and uh, and listen and enjoy it, and then go home and not be real changed. And I think that we oftentimes come in with that anticipation. Um, and so there was a time, not too long ago in my life, that I used to pray, Lord, help me to anticipate and see what you want to do, um, and come in with that attitude in my mind and in my heart to see what's going to happen. So. Thank you for your attention this morning. God bless you guys.